Hi, everybody, and welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neuroscience research podcast. Today is Thursday, September 8th, 2022, and our guest today is Dr. Inaro Correa Avila. Inaro is a research scientist at the Brain Research Institute at Universidad Veracruzana in Jalapa, Mexico. His scientific interests focus on the neurobiology of motivated behaviors. In particular, he studies the role of hormones, reward and Pavlovian associate learning and brain organization, sexual behavior, and in the formation of social bonds. His experimental techniques include multi-unit recording, neurochemical measurements and stimulation, and behavioral measurements. Other interests include uh, interaction of cerebellum and basal ganglia and Parkinsonism that I saw from your list of publications, and then addiction, and autism, and also autism in the cerebellum, which is an unusual topic, and uh, but one that Fidel uh, knows about, and we can maybe the two of you could have a conversation about that. And also autism and music, which sounds really interesting, but I don't know if we'll get to that today. So welcome, Inaro. Thank you very much, Charles. Today with us is uh, Fidel Santamaria from our own department here at UTSA and a regular on the podcast. Hi, Fidel. Hi, Charlie. How are you? Great. And Daniela Mongha. Hope I didn't mess that up too bad. And uh, she's a postdoctoral fellow working with Fidel. Welcome, Daniela. Hello, everybody. Nora, we're taught in our biology courses that the brain learns about its sex initially by hormones generated by the fetal and perinatal gonad and that this experience makes a permanent structural change in the brain, associating the brain's sex with that of the body. And some, but not many structures in the brain, become dimorphic, structurally dimorphic, and maybe in other ways. And I guess we think that the sexual dimorphism in these nuclei, most of which are in the hypothalamus, represents that permanent change in the brain that is associated with its sexual connection to the gonad. So how about starting by bringing us up to date on what structures these are that are sexually dimorphic and the nature of the differences found in those structures according to sex. Thank you. Well, uh, sexual dimorphism is an old topic, probably 40 or 50 years old. And the first region that some researchers like Roger Gorski found as being sexually dimorphic was the hypothalamus, certainly. A particular area within the MPOA, the medial periaptic area, that had this bigger nucleus uh, stained with uh, nasal dye. But bigger nucleus was at the time sufficient to say that it was a differentiation of the brain, but we really didn't know if those neurons forming, or those cells forming that nucleus were neurons or astrocytes or something else. In the se- with the same technique, many other areas were identified as sexually dimorphic. For instance, I mean, in this sexually dimorphic nucleus of the MPI, males have a bigger nucleus, females have a smaller one. But there are other areas where females have a bigger nucleus than males, like the uh, uh, ABPV, anteroventricular periventricular nucleus, or the hypothalamus. Uh, the corpus callosum is also different. It's wider in females than in males. Uh, certain nuclei in the brain stem, like the locus cerulus, is bigger in females. And there is a bunch of, of neurons like that, uh, nuclei, that are being reported as sexually dimorphic. We, for many years, have believed that that represents sufficient to explain behavioral differences 
in males and females. But maybe, maybe that's not enough. Maybe we need to understand many other places where the sexual differences are. Or maybe the differences are not only in clusters or cells. Maybe it's in dynamics or in dendritic spines or I don't know what else, but it's definitely different many levels that we can observe differentiation of the brain. Not all of them in clusters of cells, but maybe in the way the similar number of cells respond to certain similar. Yeah, I, I understand that, you know, you know we, when we learn something, our brain changes, but we have no idea really what that change is, and you can't see it in the microscope. So we don't expect everything to be associated with that morphological change in the brain. Um, but uh, the mo fact that there is a morphological change in the brain seems really, really interesting. And, but the nuclei that you mentioned, uh, they don't mean very much to me. I mean, what is the medial preoptic area connected to? Where do its axons go? What transmitters? Have people been interested in how could sexual dimorphism in the medial preoptic area of the hypothalamus get translated into some behavioral change? Right. Well, the medial preoptic area is much more complex than we believe. There's different populations of cells in it. And so far, we know there are different populations and that many of them connect to olfactory both, maybe connect to the hippocampus, maybe connect to the amygdala. And the way we see the middle periodic area now is um, an area in the hypothalamus that is involved in processing all the social and sensory information to give some incentive salience about sex to the individual. If, for instance, if we lesion the MPOA, the individual uh, doesn't respond anymore to sexual stimuli. Oh, really? They lose the capacity to get excited or aroused. Or, so or it's interested. genuinely a sexual yeah, behavior it's, it's, center. It's the okay. epicenter of sexual behavior. Uh, how? Well, probably because it, it regulates information from many other areas, like olfactory areas, uh, like, um, like spinal areas, that, that come uh, giving information about postures and, and just what happened in the environment. And I say olfactory, but also many other areas that, that feed back about incentive salience, like nucleus accumbens, for instance, or olfactory memories, like piriform cortex. Um, so yeah, it is a, it's a very important region that we medium understand so far in its role in, in the development and organization of of sex and behaviors. How does its output get expressed behaviorally? Does it make synapses on some place that we are familiar with, that we would know how that should translate into behavior? Like, sorry, I, I, I didn't get that. Well, I was just imagining, yeah. you know, maybe does it make synapses in the ventral tegmental area, for yeah, example, or some, some kind of place like that that's associated with motivation. Yeah, it does, actually. It, it, it provides, if we think about dopamine as uh, the classical, because the pathways of dopaminergic from mesencephalus to the limbic system and cortex, well, there is also the dopaminergic system itself in the MPOA that provides dopamine to the, to the mesencephalon itself. So it kind of feedbacks what is going on between the motivation, the reward, and the expectation, and it kind of closes the circle of, uh, of, of the expectation and what is getting as a reward. Yes. So, but males and females have one. Both of them need it for sexual behavior, but it's somehow 
different. And I, I wonder how that translates into sexual, I don't know, sexual preference difference, for example. Very good question. It's because MPOA is not, it's not all. That's an important area, but it's not all. Probably the tiny differences that make an important difference is all of them together. Medium priority area, organizing what is coming from, from amygdala, from piriform cortex, from uh, nucleus accumbens, and all of them together providing specific information that is different in males and females, depending on hormones that are on board, depending on many other things. So it's an important for both male and females, but it's not the whole sexual brain. It's, it's an important, but not all. And I remember an old story, maybe it's not so old, everything is, doesn't seem so old to me, that about dendritic spines in the medial preoptic area. But everything we've been talking about has just been the size of the nucleus, not some kind of detail of the histology of the neurons in the nucleus. But is there a difference in the yes. detailed histology? Yeah, um, there's some, some groups uh, in University of Maryland that are studying sexual differentiation of the brain. And they focus not on the size of the, of the cluster, but they focus on single neurons and the arborization and the dendritic spines. And what we have shown is that, indeed, all this molecular cascade that leads to masculinization affects the dendritic number of spines. And that's another level of masculinization or feminization. Not only the number but, of cells, but the drives. But wouldn't that tell you that that dimorphism is happening somewhere else? That it is the input that is dimorphic, right? And then this nucleus is just reacting to that. It, that's not. It's not the center, right? I mean, right. it's receiving all this information, but but it is the the. The information is being generated somewhere else. Right. So you say right. that because spines form in response to some kind of apparent input, and they don't just spontaneously. Uh huh. Uh -huh. It's not that you have spines just because of hormones, it's because there's some synaptic activity that could be different in, and it could be coming from anywhere else. And that those should be the areas, from my naive perspective, that are being dimorphic. Right. Right, and, and the other is just an integrator that is just receiving more or less. There are probably many different levels in which we can see dimorphism. The, the old school would, would look at the cluster. And as I said before, there are more evidence that this happens at different levels, and probably we're gonna end up understanding different patterns of activation in a neuron that looks exactly the same between males and females. But it's the pattern, probably because of the receptors that is expressing, or because enzymes that are, are different in the molecular, intracellular level, maybe that's a possibility too, that the sexual differentiation of the brain occurs at that level too. So I think we have to put together all this data to understand the complexity of the sexual brain. Definitely a cluster is not sufficient to, to make uh, to, to guarantee that this brain that I'm looking for, this size, is a male or female brain, because that's what is being shown. I mean, if we just look at the size of a, of a cluster, we are not capable of predicting if it's a male or female's brain. But, um, I mean, just, I have a little bit of a criticism there, and I know, I don't know much, but I want to hear your, your perspective on this. 
Because having a, a, a nucleus larger or smaller doesn't tell you much. I mean, the, it, it, there was this discussion about the radiation of the size of the, of the cortex right. in evolution, right? But then I think it was Sam Wang that came and said, well, well if you normalize it, you get a different uh, understanding. And there, if, we're, if you're just measuring the, the cubic millimeters of one part without looking at how it relates to other parts, Right, or to the body mass, right? I mean, that would be the, the simplest one, right? I, I don't know, I, can, I imagine that rats are, males are bigger than females. You're totally right, and there is much more criticism for that. Uh. One is that maybe we're not seeing different differences in size of the cluster. Maybe we're seeing differences in dyeing, how, how the, the nasal dye scans a cluster with or without hormones. Maybe that's mm. a possibility. That's why a different level of analysis has to kick in to, to see that if it's a functional or not difference of the brain. The truth is that that area is important for processing sexual information. And you lesion it, you take away the possibility of the individual to be interested. Yeah. So uh, I'm thinking about other things that are, that are uh, sort of connected to sexual behavior but aren't sexual behavior, like just ordinary social Right. activity which is sort of connected to sexual behavior and attention and interest in novel things all of those things are kind of connected and some of them have some similarity neurochemical similarities like oxytocin or something like that gets involved in multiple different things some of which are sexual some are not so I'm wondering about uh, uh, about that, so let's uh, let's just if we were imagining oxytocin cells, which are present in males and females, mm -hmm. I think at one time people wondered what they were for in males, but they fire at different times, and so that's enough. That's enough to make a sexual difference in oxytocin. They don't have to really be different neurons in different places. They could be the same thing as they fire at the different times. Of course, this is like what. But I was just saying, it's passing the buck. You can't blame it on the oxytocin cell anymore. Now you blame it on whoever is controlling the oxytocin cell, which starts to spread out and take over the whole brain. Right? And then at one point in your talk, you showed some functional MRI data, I think, of like brain areas that are, get going during sexual stimulation. And those were familiar brain areas that get going under all kinds of circumstances. And sensory cortical regions and motor structures and emotional places, anterior cingulate gyrus and all these kinds of places that seem to show up no matter what you're doing. And not too surprising because sexual behavior is a behavior and there's sensory side of it. And So where do we go looking for, if we want to look for brain mechanisms, where do we go looking in the brain for the things that would decide the difference between males and females? If it's not going to be a new part of the brain that wasn't present before. The way I see it, we have two places to, to look. One is subcortical areas and one is cortical areas. <laughs> it's, I, I know it's, it's too big what I, what I just said. <laughs> But the truth is that, in general, many of the scientists in the past that explore all these 
uh, neurobiological mechanisms of what they call innate neurocircuitries of behavior. They refer to them as subcortical neurocircuitries. In there is what I would look for uh, biological mechanisms that organize the sexual brain. But at the cortex, which is much more complex, I would look for the information of the nature, the nurture mechanisms that bring, that, that comes with all these memories of the experiences and social and sexual experiences that, that come with after birth. So the way I see it, we have, we have the, every one of us is unique. But we have commonalities given by the biological mechanisms that partially organize the brain subcortically. And then we have a bunch of other neurosequitries organized by the experiences that each one of us has. So we have general preferences, general and particular preferences given by the experience. That's the way I find it a bit more easier to understand the nature, nurture, organization of the brain. But definitely, we must know that lots of nurture um, um, processing also organizes the subcortical areas as but well. I think there's something like, I, I don't know, I, can, I don't know much about this, but, but uh, you can go through evolution Right, and then look for animals that don't socialize, right? Like, um, I now imagine turtles. Right. They're just, they're just born and go, and then they find each other right. to mate. Right. Do you, I mean, is there anything known about these areas, the equivalent areas? In, yes. In? I mean, the reptile brain, as mm -hmm. uh, Paul, um, um, I, I, sorry, I forgot his last name, mm -hmm. uh, uh, described in the 90s, is that organization of the brain definitely goes by layers. Now, some of them we can uh, find them more in phylogenetically in older species, like hypothalamus, brainstem, etc. Older layers may be more complicated and give social behaviors like in mammals, like limbic system, any, that, that um, thing that surrounds the reptilian brain. And then there is a neocortical layer that makes cognitive processes and nurture mechanisms probably more powerful in the species that have the wider cortex. Probably reptiles also have this capacity, but probably to a much less extent. Uh, so yeah, the, the, the way I will, I will explain it is, we all depend on reptile, mammalian, and cortical layers, but to, to, different, to different extent, depending on your degree of development, on your experiences, um, at the end, is nature and nurture playing a role? But, but are there, I mean, are, um, uh, are there sexual, is there sexual dimorphism in, in like in turtles or? Well, um, I know that everybody was interested in, in spinal cord, but I don't uh, know if they yeah. looked at the. I'm not sure about, about turtles, but, but I, um, I'm aware that some of the sexual dimorphism that is fixed in mammals, or is apparently fixed in mammals, cannot be that fixed in, in certain other species. Mm -hmm. They can change, for instance, depending on the temperature. Right, right, right. like fish right. And, uh -huh, and frogs. Uh -huh. So, uh, I don't know, really, mm -hmm. but this is a good question. Mm -hmm. To what extent things start getting fixer 
mm-hmm. or more Yeah, I was flexible. thinking about fish yeah. and temperature. Yeah. <laughs> Probably it goes both ways. I know birds have a lot of sexually dimorphic nuclei, even though mm-hmm. song right. controlling nuclei mm-hmm. are sexually dimorphic. As they as it might, you might think that they would <laughs> because of the sexual the dimorphism of behavior. Mm-hmm. In birds, there are things that the males do, the females just don't do anything like that at all. And that's not really quite true in rats. There's something sort of comparable for most kinds of behaviors for right. male and female rats. So, so we're looking for something fairly, fairly subtle. But there's, it seems to me there's a bunch of clues that have come from the uh, study of oxytocin. And I know you've studied oxytocin, so mm-hmm. I'd like to hear a little bit about your ideas about oxytocin's role in uh, sex, sexual behavior in general, not just in uh, lactation or uh, in birth. So could you think, I, I know that's too that's too vague, but um, you have some studies on sexu- on oxytocin and dopamine interactions and sexual behavior. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about sure. how oxytocin interacts with dopamine. Well, these two um, neurotransmitters, neuromodulators, have been classically involved in social and sexual behavior. Like the very past ex- uh, experiments in the 90s showed that dopamine goes up in certain areas of the brain, like middle periptic area, nucleus accumbens. When rats are exposed to cues or partners that have cues that indicate the possibility to, to have sex. So, so in that sense, uh, sex is just a rewarding stimulus, right? It's just a positive, a positive thing. Dopamine goes up in nucleus accumbens under, under any, if I right. look at food, for example. Right, because uh, it forms part of this system that um, Jack Pansek uh, named as the seeking system, involving all seeking behavior, seeking resources for everything. We are all the time looking for resources to keep alive and go away from danger and finding a mate and getting food, etc. Et so dopamine has been involved in this appetitive behavior associated with sex and other behaviors. Um, Interestingly, when after the rat has sex, dopamine goes down, which makes sense regarding to motivation. After sex, individuals lose the appetitiveness of uh, having a sexual encounter. But then after a bit later, dopamine goes up again and they um, gain the incentive motivation to, to participate in sex. So dopamine is important for that. I mean, for sex per se, for motivation. But the people that are studying what happens after sex, the one possibility is forming a pair bond with someone after having sex. So there is a, a, a very strong group in uh, at Emory University and Florida University studying that after sex, individuals form pair bonds. And that happens because dopamine goes up because of sex and because binds D2 type receptors. And if you block the two receptors, they just don't bond socially to them. I'm talking about monogamous species. So dopamine D2 type receptors are very important for not only for sex per se, but for what happens after sex. That is 
making a bond to stay there probably forever. If it's the, the type, the, the D1 type, the receptor that dopamine is attached to, then the bond doesn't form. So it's D2 one, D2 the important one, and the one, the one that prevents the formation. But isn't bonding different, a little different than sex? Because like in prairie voles and in wolves, um, I don't know, like in eagle, eagles, um, so the prairie vole will go out, the female will go out of the burrow and, and have sexual encounters. Um, even after mating for life, I mean, they, they just share, right? Uh, so, so there seems to be something else, right? Still, right? I mean, and I think wolves do the same, right? Um, You're totally right. I mean, Larry Young, who is an expert of, of this topic at Emory University, has clearly explained that it's not the same being monogamous than having sexual fidelity. It's not the same. Two different things. Some of them occur maybe at the same time. Uh, but not necessarily. I mean, monogamous voles might want to be with the partner for 99% of the time. They might raise the pups together. They might build a nest together. But if the male or the female have the opportunity to have an extra pair affair, they might do it. So he's clear in trying to, to explain that the mechanisms of pair bonding might be something a little bit different. So what do we know about the difference between those mechanisms? Do we know anything? Well, probably depends, probably depends on the type of receptor that you you keep there. Because they have this, this other model with uh, mountain voles. They are a promiscuous species that they express many more D2, D2, D1 type receptors versus the monogamous one that expresses D2 type receptors. Um, the social interaction that makes monogamous voles to have a pair bond forever, like cohabiting for long periods of time, doesn't work in the, in the promiscuous one. Giving them uh, oxytocin or dopamine D2 type doesn't work. They don't have the receptors. So probably at that level is one of the differences. I mean, in the past, someone uh, hypothesized that maybe, maybe, because making a jump, a theoretical jump from voles to humans is a big jump. <laughs> but maybe, and if we are focusing only on that, maybe in humans are a bunch of diversity in, in, in the levels of receptors that we express in certain areas. I mean, we don't consider culture, right? And education, etc. Maybe that's part of the explanation. So maybe instead of looking for sexually dimorphic places in the brain, we should be looking at, at changes in gene expression, sexually dimorphic changes in gene expression across lots of places. That's a great segue to Daniela's recently published paper on the sexual dimorphism right. on the expression of synaptic receptors, right? Yeah. Why don't you tell us yeah, about that? Yeah, we, we were studying about um, CV receptors and about NMDA receptors in females and male um, rats and we were um, uh, using um, also an environmental enrichment paradigm and we wanted to exp uh, we wanted to see if there were changes in in the expression of these receptors and what we found um, were, without the enrichment environment uh, and also in, in you know in the standard environment is that 
males and females express these receptors in a different manner. Mm -hmm. So uh, what we can see is that uh, there is this uh, dimorphism that uh, Doctor was talking about, and um, o other thing that was interesting and, and I'm thinking is how this dimorphism uh, can be linked not just to sex, uh, but also to other kind of diseases. Because uh, something interesting about what we were doing is that we were using um, autism model, uh, an, an autistic model, uh, BTBR mice. Um, so we saw that um, for BTBR mice, the autistic model, they express uh, different also after the environmental enrichment, which means that um, after the intervention that we made, um, the behavioral changes or could, uh, if, if we didn't measure it, um, but that could explain that why some therapies affect in a different way to uh, people who receive treatments, right? So, say something about what was the difference in in receptor expression. Um, um, for example, uh, we saw that uh, males respond very different uh, after the intervention with the environmental enrichment, and they decrease levels almost. Uh, as normal as the control group, however, for females we didn't see that. In in some in some cases we see that even it increase. Uh, let me just jump a little bit. So I think uh, if I remember correctly, what we published is that the there's an NMDA expression of, of receptors in the control animal and in the uh, um, autistic model, right? There was an overexpression of NMDA. But then after environmental enrichment, that returned like to normal values. Okay, so that the, 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 the treatment, right, uh, modulated the expression of an MDA. But in females, it didn't have any effect. So this is the interaction between autism and... And, may, and dimorphism. Uh, so well, it's a, a four square uh, 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 problem. Um, a two by two. So, so then there's different expressions of NMDA and CB1 in males and females in the wild type, and in the um, in, in the autistic model in the BTBR, and NMDA kind of responds the same in males, right? Mm -hmm. But not in females. Not in females. And the same thing in CB1. So then that will suggest that. Uh, treatments based on environmental enrichment that are becoming very popular um, um, uh, for humans um, in autism could have different a differential effect on uh, if you're treating uh, um, uh, a male or a female. Uh -huh. So sexual differentiation of the brain is it's also important to explain this kind of uh, interesting questions like dimorphism is not only for sex. It's important for for other um, uh, disorders that might be more easily observed in certain sex, in certain right. gender, right? The more we understand how this gets organized, we might be more likely to explain why are more boys and girls with autism, for instance. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. so everything is different. Everything is dimorphic. No wonder it's hard to track it down. It's because it's everywhere, everything. Right. 
Okay, well, maybe that is a, a good way to end this. So mm -hmm. thank you very much, Inara, for joining us today. Thank you, Charles. And Fidel and Daniela. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. Thank you. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop.